Hello, welcome to Community Polls, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in Mead, Missouri. You can catch Community Polls on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on KOPN. And all episodes can be found online at kopn.org and on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts. Today's show will focus on COVID vaccinations for children. I will be joined by our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Alman, who will also be joined by another guest, Sarah Davis, who is a midwife with public health expertise. Good morning, Dr. Alman. Good morning, Mazina. How are you this morning? Fine, thank you. Hey, good morning, Sarah. Good morning. So uh, we, in the last week, have had the COVID vaccine, the Pfizer COVID vaccine, approved for use in children uh, ages 12 to 15, and we are going to talk about that. First, I want to let people know that um, cases around the United States and in Missouri and locally in Boone County continue to be low and trending lower. Maybe you should say low is like a relative term. Lower than they have been since last summer. Um, That the uh, uh, Missouri sewer shed surveillance data is still showing, um, again, lower numbers than last summer. Uh, Last uh, reported numbers are from May the 9th. Um, And our hospitals are still operating in the green. And next week I want to talk about Uh, the new Centers for Disease Control mask guidelines, which are um, lots of people have big opinions and feelings about. But today I wanted Sarah and I to talk about um, what we know and what we don't know about vaccination in children um, ages 11 to um, 12, 12 to 15. That's that's what we have at 12 to 15, right, Sarah? Yep. Yep. Okay. So talk about what we know. Well, what we know right now comes from um, two places. It comes from the FDA um, press release, which um, they released uh, last, um, last week on May 10th after they had reviewed data that Pfizer provided them. That was about a study that Pfizer did Um, using their vaccine in 12 to 15-year-olds. And then we also have information um, from what happened to older teenagers, so 15 to 18, and adults after they had the vaccine. So those are the two places that we're getting information about what we think happens for 12 to 15-year-olds when we give them vaccines. And in the Pfizer uh, trial, what happened was that they did what's called a randomized um, placebo-controlled study, and they took 2,260 12- to 15-year-olds whose parents had given consent for them um, to enroll in the trial, and then also the children had to give consent to enroll in the trial. And then those 2,260 children were randomly assigned to either get the vaccine or to get a placebo. And in this case, the placebo was an injection. It's just that it had saline in it, like salt water, um, instead of a vaccine. Right. So they were randomly assigned to get either the vaccine or the placebo, and they did not know which one they were getting. So they didn't know which one they were getting before they got it, and they didn't know after they got it. 
half of the people, so 1,131, got the vaccine, and 1,129 got the saline placebo. And what happened next is that they followed those children um, for several months because they wanted to see two things. They wanted to see whether or not they got COVID, which is kind of the most obvious outcome. But they also wanted to see what happened um, when they looked at measures of immunity that we could look at in somebody's blood, like antibodies. Right. And so they did that for several months. They also were looking at the safety um, among those children over those couple months. So that meant that they were, they were actively monitoring those children for um, unusual health problems that we wouldn't expect them to have in that time. And this is helpful to know, while this vaccine, this Pfizer vaccine, has been authorized for emergency use among children who are 12 to 15 years old, the study is actually ongoing. So Pfizer is going to continue to collect long-term safety data on the study participants. So that's what happened with the study. What happened when they looked at the data from the study is that they saw that among the study participants at the time of the press release, 16 of the um, children who had gotten the placebo had gotten COVID over that time period, and none of the children who had gotten the vaccine had gotten COVID. So that, you know, seemed to seem to be pretty clear that the vaccine was protecting the children who had gotten it from getting COVID. And the other important thing is that they took blood samples from um, just under 200 children who had gotten the vaccine, and they compared it with blood samples from people who were older, like 15 to 18-year-olds, and then also adults who had been vaccinated and who were demonstrating strong immunity. And they compared the antibody response in the children with the older people who had gotten the vaccine. And what they saw was that the children either had the same as or better than antibody response. Right. And antibody response isn't the only immune response we have, but it's the easiest one to measure with a blood test. Exactly. Right. It's the one that we know how to measure, and it's relatively easy to do. And even though we can't measure some other parts of immune response, we can look at people, and in this case, especially adults, um, many of whom have received the vaccine um, many more than two months ago at this point, um, we can look at their immune responses and whether or not they seem to be having continued protection, like whether or not they're actually getting COVID. And right. we can we can make some pretty good educated guesses about whether or not that level of immune response is going to also protect the children. Right. Now, in none of in this study, I could not see any place where they were actually swabbing people's noses to look for the disease. Do we know if that was happening? Mm. So I have not been able to read the actual data that um, Pfizer provided the FDA. Um, I don't think that that has been publicly released at this time. I believe that I did read in a separate analysis that some of the children were, in fact, swabbed. Um, not necessarily as part of the Pfizer study, but as part of other 
monitoring programs. So, for example, um, some children's sports programs have done regular monitoring, um, and that might be a time that people were um, were swabbed. Um, you know, it's possible that a school could be doing regular monitoring, something like that. Right, and so um, we we have two ways of trying to figure out whether a vaccine is working. One is to, I'm sure there are many ways, but the two that were looked at in this case were measuring antibody levels, so drawing blood and looking for antibodies. And the other way is watching to see whether people get sick as they live their lives and move right. about in a place where the disease is actually still being transmitted. Right. And this study was done in the United States. It was. And just as all studies have limitations, this study has limitations. It's also a little bit tricky to compare vaccine efficacy, one vaccine to another, when we can't test them among exactly the same circumstances. So we're having to test these vaccines in real-world conditions. Like we give it to a, a lot of people, we give the vaccine to a lot of people, and then we give a placebo to a lot of people, and then we wait and see who gets COVID and who doesn't. Right. And on the one hand, that's very powerful because real-world real world conditions tell us a lot about how those vaccines are going to continue to work in the real world. And it's also true that real-world conditions are not something that we can control the way we can control conditions in an experiment that we design and do in a lab. Right. One of the things that was happening over the course of the time that this study was going on is that cases were dropping in many parts of the United States, not all of them, um, but in many parts of the United States. At the same time, cases were not necessarily dropping among the age group that was right. being studied, partly because a lot of the children who are in that 12 to 15-year-old category were actually going back to in-person schools after being remote learning for a while. Right. So while cases overall were dropping and there may have been less disease present in communities, um, we don't think that that was necessarily true for this particular age group because many of them were actually being exposed to higher risk situations than they had been previously. Yes, and I wanted to point out that uh, Pfizer is beginning their study of younger children. Uh, five to 11-year-olds have gotten their first doses in the last couple of weeks, and then I think the, the week after that they started to administer this to two- to five-year-olds. And those mm -hmm. studies are going to happen through the summer when, uh, in most places, children will not be in school. That's true. It's also true that children that age are often in childcare situations. Right, which especially often the two have, to five year olds. And well, right. and the five to 11 year olds during the yep. summertime are often right. in group care, but um, it's different. Like, <laughs> so yeah, it, it may be a less risk of transmission and it may be more, it's just going to be more variable. It's, going to be different. And that is always a challenge when we're trying to do studies because we're trying to just modify one variable. Did you get the vaccine or did you get the placebo? When in real world situations, there are so many variables happening. Right. And again, that on the one hand is actually very powerful because it tells us how, how those vaccines might continue to work in the world that we are living in right now. Right. And it means that we don't have quite as much information about 
how some of the variables that are out there affect the way the vaccine might work or not. Right. So um, in this age group, between the 12 to 15-year-olds, when parents are making a decision, one of the things is that 12 to 15-year-olds often have opinions themselves. <laughs> I mean, all people have opinions about whether they want to get a vaccine. The 12 to 15-year-olds are going to have strong opinions about the benefits of vaccination, specifically their ability to resume activities um, at all and to be able to be supported in their decision not to wear a mask during those circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that parents are asking me, and I bet you're getting questions too, are, well, is it safe? What should I do? And I'm wondering how I can talk a little bit about that, but I'd like for you to talk about like how you're thinking about that and how you're answering those questions. Mm -hmm. And full disclosure, I am the mother of a child who's in the 12 to 15-year-old age group. So this is something that's been um, relevant uh, this week to my family. So some of the ways that we've been thinking about it are are going through all the different ways that this particular vaccine could be helpful to us as a tool uh, in this particular pandemic situation that we're in right now. And that has meant for me, looking at it from the standpoint of whether or not it would be useful to my child, whether or not it would be useful to our whole family um, including um, extended family members who are older and at higher risk, even though they had been vaccinated. And they, you know, they are still higher risk people. And then also looking through a wider lens at what it means nationally and also internationally when more people are vaccinated and there's less chance for the virus to mutate right. and become harder to control. So, the CDC announced um, late yesterday that in the last week, about 600,000 12 to 15-year-olds have been vaccinated. Oh, my goodness. US. That's a lot. Yep. In one week. Yep. Yeah, and, about and 2 million people a day are being vaccinated in the United States. So that's close to what, you know, a third to a half of yep. all the vaccines given last right. week were yep. to people in that age group. Yep. And looking at everybody under the age or 17 and under, um, about 4 million total vaccines have been given to people um, 17 and under in the United States. Okay. So we have, a, at this point, we're um, collecting data very quickly about what happens when we give vaccine to those kids. When I was looking specifically at my child's health, I was thinking about the risk the known risks of COVID. And some of those risks are unknown to us right now. We know a lot more about COVID than we did a year ago, but we are just starting to get a handle on what it looks like when people have long haul symptoms. Right. And we are just starting to understand what that looks like in children who do sometimes get long haul symptoms. And some of those are different than the symptoms that adults get. We also know that children get that um, MISC syndrome, which is 
not necessarily correlated with severe disease, that some of the children who get very sick from that syndrome um, were not very sick when they had COVID or sometimes their families did not even know that they had COVID. So um, that MISC syndrome is relatively rare, but it, it is being noticed a lot right now. Right. Probably because there's, you know, a fair bit of COVID um, happening among children in the United States at this point. So I knew that there were those risks with COVID. As far as what's known with the vaccine, we haven't seen any data about any risks that are specific to children um, that are different than the risks that we know about for adults. So we know that adults are likely to have um, what we call mild side effects. They may not feel mild to you if they're happening to you in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> like if you have if you have chills and a fever, you might feel kind of miserable, but it's a short-lived um, transient reaction. Um, and I say that as a person who had <laughs> who had some of those side effects, and it, it was not very fun. And but I, am I did very, too, and it was yeah. not my funnest day. And right, right, yep. Um, but those are time limited, and so far among children, what we see is that they are slightly more likely to have those than adults. Um, but they are not likely to last any longer, and they are not reporting any different side effects than adults. Right. The only um, published contraindication um, is uh, people who have had a severe allergic reaction like anaphylaxis, um, and that's not any different than the contraindication for adults. Right. Um, so... You know, when I was looking at my child, it seemed pretty clear that his risk from COVID um, was, from what we can see right now, his risk from COVID was definitely greater than his risk from this particular vaccine. And we will continue to get information over time, but based on what we know right now, that's what I could see. Right. And it is true that every medical decision um, needs to be made with less data than you will have in the future. <laughs> right. And that's really hard. I am a person who loves to have information. And one of the hardest things about anybody who has to make these decisions during this pandemic is that, as you say, we don't have all the information that we would like to have. And we still have to figure out what to do right now the information that we do have, understanding that we're in a pandemic situation, even though many things are improving, that we still have a pandemic and we still want to protect people and prevent the pandemic from getting worse. Right. So we're not just making a decision in a vacuum, looking at whether or not a particular medication or vaccine, um, you know, whether or not we know everything we want to know about it. We're looking at it in the context of whether or not it can be helpful to us as a tool right now. Right. Yeah, I've been talking to families about analogies to, you know, um, I love your um, description of the vaccine as a tool, and we can think about other tools as being either safe or dangerous, and that's usually not the way we think about them. So, for example, you know, is an axe or a chainsaw safe? Not, not totally, but using them might be safer than the alternative of having that dead tree that's hanging over your house fall down if you didn't use an axe or a chainsaw to take care of it in a more controlled fashion. Or buying a car 
um, no matter what car you decided to buy, you could find a story of someone who had died driving that car. And that does not mean that you should never drive in a car. Or you could decide not to, but then there you're going to be without the tool. Um, and even, you know, back when we used horse and buggies, those methods of transportation had their own risks as well. So we're really mm -hmm. looking at safe compared to what. And since we are still in a pandemic with the virus still transmitting through the community, um, we really do need to think about the risk of the vaccine compared to the risk of the disease factored in somehow with your perceived risk of actually getting the disease. Because, of mm -hmm. course, if you don't get the disease and you don't get the vaccine, then I guess your risk is zero, but we cannot control those things. Right. Right. That's true. And then the other piece of the puzzle for me when I was thinking about this, and very, very much so for my child, um, was thinking about how vaccinating people is protective for other people. Right. So not just the person who's been vaccinated, but all the people who interact with the vaccinated person. So in the case of my child, he has been very concerned about his grandparents. And, you know, him getting vaccinated um, is an opportunity for him to protect his grandparents. Um, and then looking again through the wider lens, I'm really aware that the more people that are vaccinated, the less um, mutations we see because we have fewer infections and fewer chances for the virus to mutate, and the less likely we are to end up with mutations that are harder for us to deal with, like maybe mutations that the vaccine doesn't work very well for or mutations that cause more severe disease or spread more easily. And the truth is that unless we eliminate COVID from the planet, which it does not look like we're going to do anytime in the next year or two, um, and probably never, it is going to mutate because that's what life does. But it would be nicer if that would happen in a more slow fashion in a way that we might be able to keep up with it with surveillance and public health um, uh, effects. And if people could you know, we could respond a little bit quicker with newer vaccines or with people gradually being exposed to it rather than the sudden spread of a mm -hmm. pandemic. Right. But those are some of the those are some of the considerations that my family had as we thought about whether a vaccine was going to be a useful tool right now. And just like any tool, the vaccine is not the only thing that we considered. We um, continue to think about using masks in times when they're when they're useful and appropriate. Um, we continue to do things outside, and you know we'll continue to be very conservative about um, you know if anybody has any symptoms that might possibly be COVID, we would get tested and stay home. Um, so even when people consider vaccines as tools, you know, they're, they're not the only thing that we consider. They're just another tool that we have in a situation where we're still in a pandemic. 
Right. And, you know, Sarah, as you were talking about sort of considering what the risks were to children from the disease, I did just a little bit of um, noodling around this morning to look at what is the risk and what do we know, and the truth is we don't really know, and all of our studies are distorted a little bit by selection bias. That is, mm-hmm. m- given that most children who get infected don't, um, or many children who get infected don't have symptoms, and so it's really hard to know, like in in any study, it's going to be skewed towards higher incidence of complications because we're primarily going to be looking at children who got sick and primarily children who got sick enough that they, um, with their parents, sought health care. Right. But one of the interesting things was with the multi-inflammatory, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, um, there were 3,742 cases that have met the definition. According to the Centers for Disease Control, there are many others that are still under investigation. There were 35 deaths in that group, and uh, the average age was nine years, and 63% were either Hispanic, Latino, or black, and 60% were male. So we still don't understand why that would be. Um, and. <clears throat> there was one study in a in a medical center, so they were looking at the patients who had come to them. So they are going to be skewed towards higher um, higher symptoms and sicker children. But they were seeing that um, in their group, two percent had this multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Uh, almost two percent had myocarditis and inflammation of the heart. Mm-hmm. And then 120 days later, 36% still had one to two symptoms, and 22% had um, three or more symptoms. So there is the, you know, for people who get fairly sick, even in children, there's a significant incidence of um, uh, long symptoms of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, in one study of hospitalized children, so these are the very sickest children with COVID, 2% died, um, 3 to 13% needed to be on a ventilator, and 30% needed oxygen or intensive care unit care. So children can get very sick from COVID. Mm-hmm. Right. So we had prepared to have some things we could talk about about uh, breastfeeding and pregnancy, but we seem to be um, running out of time. And I'm wondering in the last minute or um, or two here, Sarah, if you have any summarizing thoughts you wanted to say. Mm-hmm. Well, I bet I could summarize the pregnancy and breastfeeding update. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you do that in about a minute or two? All right. As far as vaccination in pregnancy updates, Early data from the VSAFE program, and this is the vaccine tracking, um, vaccine side effect tracking program that's happening right now among people getting vaccinated in the United States. It's optional, but data from that VSAFE program shows that pregnant people who are vaccinated had big and effective immune system responses to the vaccine. These pregnant people had the same kind of pregnancy outcomes as people who were not vaccinated. So they didn't have unusual things or dangerous things happen to them any more often than people who had not been vaccinated. A smaller study looking specifically at the placentas of people who were vaccinated concluded that the placentas of vaccinated people were like the placentas of people who were not vaccinated. So they were not seeing any differences in placentas. And antibodies to COVID that the body generates after vaccination did cross the placenta. And we think that those antibodies are actually giving the new babies 
some protection from COVID, which would be great. As far as breastfeeding updates, the most recent research um, published this month continues to support the idea that COVID antibodies generated by a breastfeeding person's body or a lactating person's body after vaccination do pass into breast milk. And researchers increasingly think that those antibodies give those breastfeeding babies and children some protection from COVID. Well, that you did that very well, Sarah. Thank you so much um, for this. I am, uh, I'll just have to say my summary is that I am recommending that my patients who are children get vaccinated for COVID unless they have a contraindication. And then I'm continuing to encourage all of my patients who don't have a contraindication of the vaccine to get vaccinated as soon as they can. Um, and if people want to talk to me about their decisions about vaccinations, they're welcome to give me a call. And in the meantime, um, get your vaccine, wear your mask, wash your hands, um, take your vitamin D, and continue to develop a cheerful confidence that your body and your children's bodies can handle a viral infection. And so back to you in the studio, Messina. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Alleman, and thank you, Sarah Davis, for your thoughts on for your thoughts today. And with that, we end today's edition of a Community Polls. We'll be posting this show at kopn.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts later today. You can catch the show once again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Thanks for tuning in to Community Polls. 51% comes up next. Stay tuned.